Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary, where I take a look at a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. Joining me on this episode is Peter Fraze, editor at Jacobin Magazine and author of the book Four Futures, Life After Capitalism. The book is about coming to terms with some of the things we're going to have to deal with in the future, such as ecological crisis, automation, and how the different ways we might respond to these things could end up creating very different futures, hence the title Four Futures. Peter lays out two utopias and two dystopias and explains how different responses to the same factors could lead us down these different paths. But we'll get into that in detail during the interview. If you're new to this podcast, the previous episode offers an introduction to Utopia. So if you don't really know much about what Utopia is, it might be worth checking that out. Uh, I speak to Fatima Vieira from the University of Porto, who's got a, a lot of really interesting stuff to say about Utopia. So please do check that out. As I mentioned in my previous episode, this is a new podcast, so if you enjoy it, if you could take the time to subscribe, rate and review the podcast, that type of stuff really does make a big difference in terms of its exposure and it will help it to grow and make it easier for me to keep doing this. So if you enjoy it and could do that, that would be massively appreciated. If you've got any feedback on the podcast or have got anything to suggest that you'd like me to cover, like a novel, a book, a film, a person or anything else, you can tweet me at Utopian Horizons email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com or get in touch at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. Before we get on to the conversation with Peter, I should just mention that the audio quality isn't as good as the last episode. That's my fault for not checking with Peter ahead of time what we were doing in terms of technology and stuff, so I couldn't use the recording method I intended to. But um, I think it's not that bad, so it should be fine. So anyway, with that noted, on to my conversation with Peter. Joining me now is Peter Fraze, author of Four Futures, Life After Capitalism, to talk about utopia in general and the utopias he outlines in this book specifically. Peter, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking utopias and dystopias, possibly. The place I wanted to start was you say in your book that there are two things, basically, which we have to confront in the 21st century, and that defines the the confines of your utopias and dystopias. So can you tell me what those two things are and why we have to confront them? Uh, well, it's two things. I mean, it's it's sort of three three things, but the two things that I kind of interact with each other in the book are, one, the ecological crisis that is upon us, climate change, resource scarcity, all of the things that bear upon the ability of the earth to support a rich human civilization. And then the other thing is the basic contradiction of class struggle. You could talk about that in those terms, class struggle in a Marxist sense or, you know, inequality, the 1% and the 99%, if you want to use those terms, how does the inequality of power and resources intersect with the climate crisis? And all of that is sort of put in the context of a third thing, which is various debates about automation and robots and algorithms and how that affects labor and the economy and what, you know, what that means for the working class and for all of us. So I think you point out in your book, which I would agree with, is that uh, people are generally quite aware of um, climate change. People aren't so aware of automation and what that means for the future. Um, Why do you think that is? I wouldn't say actually that people aren't aware of it. 
I would say some people are very aware of it. I think there's been a new wave in the last few years of what I would call the literature of automation anxiety, which is this idea that, oh, the robots are going to take our jobs, basically, which is not a new concern. It's as old as capitalism itself. It goes back to the Luddites. It goes back to the Industrial Revolution. It goes back to various points in our history, which we can get more into if you want, about these points where the constant capitalist drive to economize on labor and introduce new technologies and new machinery and so on is seen as this, on the one hand, very promising thing because this should make us all richer, right? This should all yep. allow us to have more with by working less. But in the context of a world where those machines and those processes are owned by a capitalist elite, it's also very scary and very dangerous because people are thinking, well, if a robot takes my job, then what becomes of me? And I think – not everyone is necessarily thinking about that, but there has been a wave of books and articles by various people in both the academic and the popular literature looking at things like, you know, the Watson supercomputer that was developed by IBM or new kinds of, you know, everything from that to the robot that can automate the making of hamburgers and McDonald's and replace fast food workers. So I think there's been a renewed wave of consciousness of that and concern about that. Like, what does that mean for us? Something that something that I wanted to talk about was the the kind of utopian method and the one that you've used in your book. Uh, you said that your speculation that you've used to create these these possible futures is deliberately hyperbolic. I wanted to, to ask why you took that approach. Well, this is sort of interesting because I so the book is an extension of an article that I wrote for Jacobin Magazine a few years back, uh, where. There I was very much – I sort of almost skipped over the automation part. I said sort of like, let's just assume we could automate everything. Then what? And in the intervening years before I wrote the book, there had been more and more of this literature discussing automation and so on. And I felt I needed to more engage with these actual questions of like, well, is this kind of rapid automation happening? Is it new? Is it as extreme as people are saying? And that is a very complicated debate. But – what I wanted to get at is what I think is the underlying issue that is not new, that is, again, as old as capitalism, which is if we have these technologies, if there's this constant drive to increase productivity, which there has been throughout the history of capitalism, what are the political implications of that? And I wanted to get at this question of, okay, does this just increase a tiny elite that owns the robots, or can this be used to liberate everyone from labor? And in order to sort of simplify that, in the tradition of much speculative fiction, you sort of start with just an assumption, a premise. Suppose everything could be automated, and I don't actually believe, you know, in, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways, you can't literally automate all labor away. But by kind of pushing that assumption to a certain extreme, it allows us to talk about other issues, to talk about other things that are at stake politically. Because often, especially, you know, in the sort of socialist left where I come from, this question of like organizing labor and work and who does what jobs and how do we plan production and so on is a thing that takes up a lot of the discussion. And I wanted to sort of put that to one side in order to reveal other things that I thought were important. Okay. Uh, also, you talked about you trying to combine social science with speculative fiction to create a type of social science fiction. Um, could you explain that a bit? So the basic idea is obviously, you know, the book is called Four Futures. My approach is trying to talk about trajectories out of capitalism, both good ones and bad ones. And what I wanted to avoid, I guess, was the trap of, you know, what I would sort of derisively call futurism in terms of 
the airport bookstore book that says, here's what's going to happen in 20 years and how you can profit from it or something like that. Hmm. Uh, I'm not trying to predict the future. Rather, I'm trying to do what I think speculative fiction does best, which is there's the you – know, the expression is often used that speculative fiction is really always about the time in which it is written. So these kind of extreme kind of concentrated versions of current trends that I put out as my four futures are my attempt to think through what's happening in the present, both the good things and the bad things, what we want to fight for, what we want to fight against rather than thinking in terms of prediction. So it's the speculative fiction aspect of it allows me to really, you know, give sort of that imaginative charge to like this is how society could be fundamentally different mixed with the social science aspect of this is how these things are all emerging out of the present that we already live in. There's a really nice quote in there on futurism I liked actually, which is science fiction is to futurism what social theory is to conspiracy theory. I very much like that. You... um I get the sense that you're a, a fan of science fiction and see something valuable in its kind of uh, utopian political power. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what I often like to say when people ask about where the book came from and where my intellectual project comes from is that it's a the intersection of Karl Marx and Star Trek. Hmm. I grew up, I'm 36 years old, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Which, to me, looking back on it, is this kind of utopian and I would say communist vision of a society that has transcended uh, private property, in, has transcended capitalism, has transcended scarcity, has created a kind of human freedom that we in a capitalist society do not enjoy. But the limitation of the way that that world was envisioned was that it was lacking a, a politics in a certain way and specifically the politics of how you get to that world. There was a sort of liberal assumption that if you have these technologies like the replicator or antimatter-based energy, if you have this sort of post-scarcity technology, then somehow you just get to this abundant world of Star Trek. And being also a Marxist, my thought was sort of, well, it doesn't really work like that. The ruling class tries to stay the ruling class mm. and will try to prevent us from getting into that kind of egalitarian world. And so the book was sort of like in some ways emerged out of the intersection of those two thoughts. I think uh, something it talked about briefly in the um, first episode as well in, in regards to science fiction is this power it has of um, estrangement, like of making what seems natural, uh, unnatural, which I think is particularly important when you're writing about capitalism, which is obviously a totalizing system that structures how we think to some degree. So I think that's really a valuable thing in science fiction. And something, um, something we also talked about, which I think is uh, one of the strengths of your book, having four different futures, is that one of the key, the key um, strengths of utopianism is it forces us to see the future as a possibility, different possibilities, and having four um, options of, of how things could go certainly does that. So I wonder if we could get on to sort of talking about the, the specifics of, of what you lay out. Sure. As you've mentioned uh, before, you have this idea that we could have a future that on one axis is either equal or hierarchical, and the other access is um, either scarce or resource rich, and those these these two things define what we we, we could have. Um, starting off with communism, which is a, a future of quality and abundance. So, could you explain briefly what this world would look like? Sure. So the idea here is, first of all, yes, abundance abundance in the sense of overcoming the ecological contradiction. So. 
That means we move to renewable energy, we get off of fossil fuels, we find more efficient ways to use our resources, we probably find ways to clean up the damage that we've already done, reverse climate change, all of that, right? This is imagining that that particular constraint, that ecological constraint is one we can overcome. And then at the same time, we also overcome the stratified class structure of the society that we live in so that this abundant world is not just enjoyed by a tiny elite, but is enjoyed by everybody. And that is the world that is Star Trek, essentially. You have a replicator. You have access to the basic needs of life. And so what life becomes about is not the struggle for survival, not the competition over resources, but instead, what do we do with ourselves, essentially, when we have been liberated from those more basic concerns, which... I mean, the court of the part of that, that part of the book and that chapter, what I ended up having to do is to try to make the argument that this is not sort of an end of history. This is not an end of all conflict. It's a, in some ways it's a world not without problems, but with different and better problems because we've eliminated that that basic problem of trying to get enough money, trying to get enough to survive that defines capitalism. But, you know, human beings find all kinds of other things to, to conflict and fight over. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was a, a strength of the of your speculation, actually, um, that it doesn't assume that this kind of perfect world of no conflict, it, you, you point out, as, as you say, taking away money and scarcity is the, the code for organising our lives. doesn't mean that there's no conflict and doesn't mean that there's still things that will emerge. Um, I think you, you talk about there being new new hierarchies that would emerge. Well, not exactly new hierarchies, but maybe some of the old hierarchies, but they are separated a little bit from the world that we live in now. So the metaphor that I use in that section uh, to think about how capitalist social hierarchies work is the metaphor of the magnet. You think the idea of like if you put a magnet down on a – I don't know if, if you or if your listeners have did this exercise in school, but there's an exercise where you put a magnet down on a table and then dump a bunch of little iron filings. Sure on the table and they will all just like arrange themselves into this starboard shape around the magnet, you know, around the two poles of North and South. And the metaphor I use is that this is sort of what the capital relation, which is the term I use for the relationship between, you know, capital on one hand and labor on the other, that process of trying to exploit labor and make profit and reproduce more capital. That relationship between capital and labor is this kind of social magnet. Which is the purpose of that image is to say that it's not that that's the only contradiction. It's not that it's the only conflict, but it has this magnetic force that draws other conflicts into relationship with it. Whether you're talking about gender, whether you're talking about racism, whether you're talking about even just sort of personal, you know, jealousy and backbiting over whatever thing is happening in your life. These things all tend to get aligned with the magnetic force of capital because it all comes down to how do you make a living? How do you survive? Sure. And so you eliminate that. One, you, once you take out the magnet, all of those other conflicts are still there, but they're not aligned with each other in the same way. They become actually different and actually independent of each other. And it creates a situation also in which in any given context, if you are in a situation where you are in conflict with people or you are you know, at an impasse with people, you can opt out. You can go do something else because you have the basic conditions of life provided for, whereas often you can't do that in our society because – you know, you can't quit your job. You can't leave the group that you're in. You know, you can't piss someone off because that will threaten your ability to make a living. So it's not so much that there are completely new conflicts. It's that 
the conflicts that we see now take on a different form when they're not organized in a capitalist way. Something that's uh, important in this future and something that people are starting to talk about is the idea of a universal basic income, um, which for anyone who doesn't know would be, I guess, a benefit we would call it in the UK or social security you would call it in America, but um, something that goes to everybody. Everybody gets gets this um this uh, chunk of money regardless of circumstance there's there's no limit to that so what i found very interesting was the way you talked about how the ubi could twist the capitalist drive to increase productivity could you explain that briefly sure so this was based on a philosophical exercise that was done in the early 80s by philip van paris and robert vanderveen in which they thought through well what could possibly happen if you get gave this the basic income this idea that everyone gets, like you said, a check every month, unconditional, no matter what. Not a huge amount of money, but enough that you could live on it, that in any given situation, you could choose to not take a job. You might not live very well, but you would live. And what this would do is it would create a certain – it would intensify certain incentives that employers face, which is, okay, so suppose you have some very unpleasant job, whether it's cleaning toilets or it's working in a coal mine or whatever you think of as a job that people don't really want to do. Given the existence of the basic income, people are in a much better position to say, well, I don't want to take that job because I have my basic income. I might not be rich, but I'd rather just live on my basic income than do that. And so the employer is faced with a choice. They can either say, okay, I will pay a lot more money for you to do this bad job, or I will find some way to automate it, basically or to at least do it with much less labor. And so this creates a situation almost the opposite of what we have now, where many of the worst jobs and many of the most socially necessary jobs are performed by people who make very little money, you know, who make minimum wage or less than minimum wage or who are undocumented immigrants, you know, uh, you know, these sort of like basic jobs of like cleaning up and taking care of people and all this. Meanwhile, people who do sort of useless or socially destructive things at hedge funds make millions and millions of dollars. And the the twisting of the capitalist incentive that's that the idea of the basic income lays out is this idea that you can create a situation in which all these bad jobs, these bad jobs, but also sometimes socially necessary jobs can become things that either are automated or you know, become the best paid because that's what you have to do to get people to do them if they have another option, if they have another way to support themselves. Moving on to rentism, which is another feature you describe. This is essentially... The same world you describe in communism, but without equality, right? So we still have total automation, but um, I suppose you could say we're kind of projecting the power relations we already have to some degree so the, into the future, so the elite still has its power. Yes, and in fact, this, this, for, this future was kind of the, actually the starting point of this whole project for me. Before I wrote the essay version of this book, before I wrote the book, uh, I was thinking, again, going back to Star Trek, about that Star Trek world. And as I was saying earlier, thinking about this idea that, well, you know, where's the politics? Where's the idea that, like, there's a ruling class that doesn't want the kind of communist Star Trek world to happen? So what happens if we get the technology, but we don't get the political order of the egalitarian communist future? How how does that work? How can you maintain the property relations and the class relations of our world without the structure of you know, everybody being employed in wage labor producing things. And that's where this sort of rentist you know, world came from. 
obviously when we when we're talking about rent i mean that does apply to to physical things like land and so on and you can you can already see how important that is in uh, today in here in the uk for example 0.6 of the in a, sorry, this is in, in England and Wales. 0.6 of the population owns half of the rural land. And we play an insane amount in farm subsidies to landowners, which is 42 billion a year. Right. And the, the United States also, you know, subsidizes big landowners to an enormous degree. Yeah. So you can see that that's already a, a massive problem. But you're also talking about less tangible things. Right. So I'm using rent in its sort of technical economic sense and building on the work of other left-wing writers like David Harvey, but going back to classical economists like David Ricardo and to Marx, of course, where the idea of rent, you know, yeah, we think of it as like rent on land, but what it means in this tradition, in this technical sense, it means basically you own something and then you make money by charging for access to it rather than by doing something with it. So if you own a factory, you make money by doing something with the factory. You hire some workers, you buy some raw materials, you make some widgets, you sell them, you get money, right? That's a kind of what we think of as the classically capitalist way of making money. But rent is more like you own the land underneath the factory, and so the factory owner just has to pay you some money for access to the land. You don't do anything, you just make the money. And historically, land has been the major source of rent. But today, as you alluded to, we have all these other property forms that have the same structure. So if I own the patent on a life-saving drug, even if that drug costs almost nothing to produce, I can charge whatever I want for it because I'm the only one that has the right to produce it. There is a legal form that says only I can make this drug. Same if I own the rights to a song or a movie. I, only I am allowed to legally make copies of that song or that movie, even if like it costs virtually nothing for me to do so. And so I kick back and I collect rents. And so the idea of the rentist society is one in which that property form more and more comes to dominate the entire economy. Talking about a future of automation, we're talking about also things like blueprints for 3D printing, like software algorithms. Um, something that you, you point out as well is it's, it's not just that they own it and can sell it for what they want. They can also decide how you use it. And you actually gave some some interesting examples that already happen in case anyone thinks these kind of futures you're laying out are like wild speculation. I think you gave an example of Monsanto uh, winning a, a legal case of a farmer over en genetically engineered seeds that they basically won, that they could decide how he used them. Yeah, it was a very interesting case because he basically, yeah, of course, seeds and agriculture, you know, yeah, seeds is are, you know, full, you know, there's incredible amounts of intellectual property wrapped up in that. And this particular case was one where basically the rule was you could buy these seeds from Monsanto and you could plant them and you could harvest the corn that grew from the seed. But what you couldn't do was then take, you know, the seeds that you had just grown and replant them. You had to buy the seeds again every year. And if you replanted the seed, then you were violating the license, right? And that's exactly, yeah, it's exactly the rentier dynamic of I own the right to this pattern, this pattern that's encoded in a seed, and I have a right not just to sell you the seed, but then also to tell you what you can do with it. Something from that chapter that I also want to mention, just because I find it amazing, not particularly related to anything, is that there's a Hong Kong venture capital firm that has an AI on its board that has a vote, which is incredible to me. Yeah, and there's been some more. I've seen some more stories recently that other companies are doing this too, putting uh, algorithms uh 
in in a, in a decision making capacity in uh, investment firms. I really, what I really want to know is, does the AI vote first? <laughs> because that could uh, that could mean that the AI is basically running the company if people decide, well, we we better not go against the tech. The tech knows best. Well, this is the real. I mean, this is how we actually, you know, if if we the actual real version of you know the movie The Matrix, it's not actually. That they put us in tanks and suck out our juices or whatever. It's that we end up in an economy that's being run by uh, algorithms that uh, have legal authority over us. Sure. Moving on to to another one. You, this is a, a future where we we have um, equality as in communism, but we have scarcity due to the ecological problems that we're we're facing. In many ways, we'd have to do similar things to what we'd have to do in communism to survive in this world. Is that fair? In terms of like solar power and yeah, so it's more yeah, it's more a matter of of course we're still thinking in terms of in some ways like, there's different ways to look at this. One way to think about it, you know, I use the term socialism and communism for a reason because I'm using them in a very like old-fashioned 19th century sense, right? Communism doesn't mean like the Soviet Union; it means the kind of like free for all that we were just talking about. Socialism is sort of this almost this idea of like people used to talk about after the revolution you would have a socialist government and a state that would sort of plan things. Sure. But that would eventually wither away and turn into what I'm calling communism, where you don't need that anymore. But you, you know, in that chapter, what I'm talking about is the stage in which we have to clean up the environment. We have to get under renewable energy. We also have to adjudicate the fact that we, even if we have our Star Trek replicators, maybe we can't all just replicate as much as we want because the Earth can't sustain that. So there has to be some process, some negotiation that makes sure that everybody sort of doesn't take more than their share. So this is a very kind of centralized planning is vital, basically, because of the scarcity. Well, it's planning. I mean, how centralized is an open sure, question, sure. but it requires planning. And because it requires planning, therefore, it requires the question of democracy, right? Because in communism, the question of democracy almost doesn't arise because everybody is sort of like an autonomous agent. They have their replicator and they can, they're free to do what they want. Socialism is this question of, okay, we, we can't all just do whatever we want. The earth can't support that. And so we need to think through planning and therefore we need to think through democracy. And you say that in this kind of world, we would have to rethink our relationship to nature. Uh, could you explain a bit about uh, how and why? Yeah. Um, ultimately, this question of democracy and this question of planning is much of it is about the planning of nature itself. So, you know, I draw on ideas about economic planning and so on that come out of the 20th century socialist experience. But a lot of that literature and a lot of those debates have to do with planning labor, you know, who does what, who does what job, you know, how many, what kind of widgets do we churn out, that sort of thing. And if you're starting with the premise that I start with in the book, which is that we can automate all that, that's not the question. The question is, how do we plan nature? And my argument is that we, in fact, already do, to a certain extent, plan nature, which is to say that human beings have insinuated ourselves into the operation of the natural world to such an extent that we cannot extricate ourselves. So that metaphors that say things like, oh, we need to reduce our carbon footprint or we need to be less involved in nature or anything like that are just the wrong way to think about it. Yeah, yeah like the idea that we're separate to nature and we should right. like keep nature over here and let nature be. Right. We're not, we are, we are, we are so deep in nature. Not only are we, obviously we are human beings who are ourselves nature, but we have essentially taken charge of the ecosystem. The carbon cycle is the most obvious example of that that people know now because of climate change and CO2 emissions. But there are other examples. The nitrogen cycle is one that I'm quite fond of, which is the fact that 
ever since humans started moving into cities in huge numbers, we can no longer operate agriculture in the old way. We needed to create, uh, we needed to fix nitrogen through industrial processes in order to replenish the soils and grow food on the scale that is necessary for the number of humans who now live on the planet. And so it's also not possible to go back from that. We are essentially living in this giant interconnected cyborg world that we are the managers of. And the question is, will we manage that planet Earth according to socialist principles or according to the capitalist principles on which it's now being managed? Mm. Um, something that I was quite surprised to, to see in this was uh, an advocacy of, of the market to help with planning, having obviously read, read Jacobin, knowing it's a, a socialist publication. So could, could you explain a bit about how... Uh, why you feel the market can operate um, differently in this kind of world and, and how it can help. Yeah, well, so there's, you know, there's in the history of the socialist movement, there's a great debate about what's called market socialism and whether that is or isn't something that can be part of the left's arsenal. Um, and I've had different positions on it at earlier points of my own career, but I, you know, I came to the position that you, so basically I decided that you have to decide what it is you know, if you're an anti-capitalist and a socialist, which is what I identify myself as, you have to decide what is it about the society that we live in that you object to? What is the fundamental source of unfreedom in capitalism? And to me, it's not the market. There are many leftists who will sort of rail against the market as being this bad, dehumanizing, alienating thing that leads to inequality. I tend to think that that is not the problem, that the two problems are – one, wage labor, which we've talked about some already, the idea that everyone is forced to work for someone else or almost everyone is forced to work for someone else to make a living. And then also the inequality of resources. And it's that inequality of resources that leads to markets having such baleful effects under capitalism because the problem with a market is not that you go and bid on prices and you buy and sell things. The problem is that the people who come into those markets are wildly unequal in their resources. Me and you don't come to the same market that Donald Trump comes to, okay. that Bill Gates comes to, because we have wildly different endowments and resources to bring to those markets. But the market itself is only a technology. So it fits into this general idea that I talk about there at the book about what is technology and what does it mean for the project of human emancipation. If, for example, you wanted to allocate – and I, the example I use in the book is you want to allocate parking spaces. There's experiments that have been going on in, in U.S. cities where you have sensors and apps that essentially track who wants parking in one neighborhood or another neighborhood and uses their a complicated algorithm to set prices for parking higher when there's more demand, lower when there's less demand. And this is a way to basically solve the problem that otherwise arises, which is that people you know, spend too much time basically cruising around looking for parking, which in certain uh, big cities is actually a large proportion of the traffic in a lot of neighborhoods. Hmm. And so this is like a genius idea, but you do it in a capitalist society and you're basically saying rich people can park wherever they want and poor people are the ones that have to go park out in the boonies somewhere because, again, the people coming into the market don't have even resources. But you can imagine in a different kind of society that you know we all have the same – we all get allocated the same number of credits for our Star Trek replicators or whatever, and then – there's some market mechanism that decides, you know, exactly what happens to those. Do I want a new iPhone? Do I want to take a transatlantic flight? Do I want to eat a steak? You know, you don't need necessarily need a planning, you know, board or a kind of a bureaucratic process to determine that. Markets can be a technology that are used to adjudicate those questions, but again, only if they are sort of subordinated to a larger 
system of political and economic equality. Okay. So we've had a society where of abundance, where we're all equal, we're uh, free from the constraints of wage labor, have what we can um, have what we want, effectively. We've had a, a world where there's a small elite that controls everything and the rest of us will be um, likely in, in poverty and perhaps having to being under their control as to how we can use the things that they own. We've had this world where things are, are very scarce and perhaps will be difficult in a world, but it has a quality. It sounds like a pretty nice place to live. Then we have this one, which is unquestionably the worst of the futures you lay out called exterminism which is where we have the scarcity of the socialist world, but um, we still have a very strict hierarchy. Um, so where, where does this lead us? So the starting point of this last, and, and I sort of hate ending on it because I try to be not so dystopian with this book. But We could talk about some uh, slightly more positive things after this. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, there it is. The logic of the two-by-two two grid entails that this square must exist. And what motivates it is, and what I think drives the argument of that chapter, is this idea that there's this basic contradiction that has been the motive force of the political economy of capitalism, which is what I say is the mutual interdependence between capital and labor, meaning capitalists need workers because somebody has to run the shops and the factories and do the work, and the workers need the capitalists because – well, they don't have any other way to make a living. They don't have control over the means of production. But the idea of widespread automation entails the possibility that that breaks down, that the, the bosses don't need us or don't need many of us. And so then what happens, uh, what ends up happening is the rich have their private islands and their catered communities. I just you know saw yeah, another story today about some you know rich person scheme to essentially run away from social conflict. Uh, with the aid of a lot of money and a lot of technology. And so they have their drones and their, you know, surveillance systems and so on. And then what happens to the rest of us in that context? And what happens to us is we're unemployed. We are warehoused in refugee camps, in prisons. We are, you know, allowed to die of preventable diseases or die in disasters caused by climate change. And what this amounts to is, to be blunt, a genocidal war of the rich against the poor, which doesn't necessarily ever take the form of, you know, the concentration camp or what we think of as the classical forms of genocide, but it has the same effect that we are superfluous, we are surplus populations, and that therefore the rich are content to allow us to die. Uh, and that to me is sort of the end game of a world in which we neither solve the ecological crisis, nor do we win the class struggle, but instead become a world in which uh, the callous, risk, uh, callous rich uh, no longer have any need for us. Hmm. And um, as you point out, we've already seen uh, automated killing today through drones and so on. You could conceive how in the future that would help to make the um, the process of killing people off less traumatic by automating oh, automating that job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the game, the I use the novel and the movie Ender's Game in, in the book as the example of this, and that book is about a kid essentially – a kid who is recruited and thinks he is playing a video game and is actually not playing a video game. He's, he's persecuting a real war and committing a genocide against an alien species. And you can compare that to the people who sit in a bunker in Nevada and operate a drone. And it's obviously if you're doing that, it's a little different if you're just sitting there in your bunker remote controlling a drone. 
killing someone in Yemen compared to if you're actually there doing it. And that certainly does help to grease the wheels of allowing this kind of murderous machine to happen and allow people who are participating in it to feel okay with it. And also you you gave a a very good example of today. Um, Israel used to be dependent to some degree on uh, Palestinian labor. And as that's become less the case, you can see they've become more and more aggressive in terms of how how they um, treat Palestinians and their What's almost become a project to, to destroy Palestine, I think. Yes, and um, also that they have become part of what the Israeli economy has become is a sort of testing ground for these uh, these militaristic extremist technologies. That I mean, that's part of what they sell to the world is that things that are tested on Palestinians will then be sold to Americans or sold to other countries that want to use them for their own purposes. Hmm. I want to, uh, to 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 move on to just talk to you uh, briefly about the the importance of Utopia today. I just want to I just want to say very quickly, uh, as I mentioned before, the, this part of the strength of Utopia, I think, is to see the future as possible and not inevitable. And I really like the fact that your book really highlights the fact that the future will be an ideological struggle, and the technologies we have do not lead anywhere inevitable. Um, I just want to pivot from a point that you made in your conclusion, which is that something new is coming and we can't go back, uh, which obviously requires utopian thinking. This is something I talked about briefly in in the first podcast, but given that you you write for Jacobin and you're writing about what's happening today, um, do you think that the right, I'm thinking of like Donald Trump, Brexit in the UK, has outflanked the left when it comes to using utopian visions um, their, their visions of the future are obviously dystopian from my perspective, but their use of utopian language, seeing the future as possible for change, taking an antagonistic stance to the status quo, which is what utopia does. Do you think that they've um, used utopian language and thinking uh, more effectively than the left? I, I would disagree with that, at least to some extent. I mean, I think what they're doing is more what you would call Arcadian thinking. Which is to say, mm-hmm. utopian thinking is about sort of a future no place. This is more a kind of a recovering of an imagined past. It's a nostalgic politics. It's, it's most obvious, of course, in the U.S., make America great again and slogans like this. The idea that Donald Trump offered to the deindustrialized working class that he was going to bring back manufacturing jobs is for a variety of reasons, including widespread automation, is never going to happen. It's promising – vision of the past, first of all, which was never a real past that existed, but it also is just not anything that can be constituted. It's just a bunch of false promises. Brexit, I would also say, has another dimension to it. And this bears on uh, nationalist uh, and xenophobic and racist politics generally, sure. whether it's in the U.S. or in you know the Netherlands now or you know throughout Europe. This kind of you know, the, the, yeah, the nationalist and xenophobic and racist politics of we need to get out these immigrants or get out these others uh, in order to make, you know, make society great again in some mid 20th century sense. I see that as a kind of an echo of what I call the politics of exterminism, mm. which is, you know, if you look at what, you know, what is a Nigel Farage promising? What are any what is a Donald Trump promising? It's sort of it's saying to a certain segment, a certain white segment of the working class you know, you get to join us, the rich, on our private island, you know, literally our private island, if we're talking about Britain. And that that's a sort of it's attempt to it, it gives a sort of a temporary reprieve, an attempt to cleave off one part of the working class, even though 
I would say, certainly in the long run, those those working class voters for Trump or for Brexit uh, are they're, they're not going to win out They're They're not going to benefit. They're going to be thrown to the side sure. just as everyone else is. But that that is a sort of holding pattern, a temporary stalling mechanism that the ruling class can use before they're ready to just be done with all of us. Hmm. This is the, uh, one of the perennial concerns of Utopia, though, right? Who's in and who's out? And it's very clear who's out in, um, as you say, those racist, xenophobic futures that we're we're heading towards. I should, I should probably clarify, when I was talking about the, the left, I'm thinking of the, the mainstream left. I, I was thinking of, of their kind of inability to move beyond neoliberal capitalism, basically. Their inability to accept that the world is changing. And I, th- I think you can see a, a stagnation in the, the Democratic Party. Um, Nancy Pelosi on TV being asked about people having concerns with capitalism and being completely dumbfounded and unable. Uh, what I've seen on NYU's campus and what I've seen in polls all over, in CNN even, uh, a Harvard University poll last May showed that People between the ages of 18 and 29, not just Democrats, not just leftists, 51% of people between 18 and 29 no longer support the system of capitalism. And that's not me asking you to make a radical statement about capitalism, but I'm just telling you that my experience is that the younger generation is moving left on economic issues. And I've been so excited to see how Democrats have moved left on social issues uh, as a gay man. I've been very proud to see you fighting for our rights and for uh, many Leadership, many Democratic leaders fighting for our rights. But I wonder if there's anywhere you feel that the Democrats could move farther left to a more populist message, the way the alt-right has sort of captured this populist strain on the right wing, if you think we could make a, a more stark contrast to right-wing economics. Well, I thank you for your question, uh, but I have to say we're capitalist. And that's just the way it is. However, we do think... Nancy Pelosi on TV being asked about people having concerns with capitalism and being completely dumbfounded and unable to conceive that people might might have issues with that. Oh, that's um, absolutely true. And I certainly think we saw – I've certainly watched in American politics what happened with the Bernie Sanders campaign, what's happened to the Democratic Socialists of America, which is the organization that I belong to and have belonged to for almost 20 years – which has exploded in membership, including one of the members being that young man who asked the question of Nancy Pelosi, precisely because there's that sense that the mainstream political order, which, yes, I would not call the left. I would call liberalism at best. Yeah. The mainstream of American politics has just exhausted itself and just has no answers and showed by you know Hillary Clinton losing to what should have been the most easily beatable candidate imaginable. It just shows how exhausted they are. Mm. And that is and that is one of the points of hope for me is that there is this opening for us to actually build real alternatives and that there are I've just seen just so many people who are just desperate and like excited about some real left alternative that is not the established political order. Just something I'd like to finish on. Are there any uh, utopian ideas that you, you think the left needs to adopt? Um, something that I really found interesting in your, your book and hadn't really thought about was the re- uh, reduction in working hours, which you've pointed out is kind of, in the past, that was a, a frequent concern of, of the left, and it's it's been forgotten about. That could potentially be a route to a leftist utopian 
populism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think shorter hours is something we have to get back onto. I mean, I used to say, you know, universal basic income, which we talked about before, but it was just now become a little bit more of a talking point and sort of a controversial thing. I'm still in favor of that, at least if it's implemented correctly. But yeah, shorter hours to me is so central because it's just, yeah, it's like this is what so much of the historic labor movement was about. You had the movement for the 10 hour day. You had the movement for the eight, eight hour day. You had, you know, in the 30s, people were trying to go 35, 30 hours. And then with a few exceptions like France and so on, you know, people sort of stepped away from that for a variety of reasons. But it does get to the core of what I think is, you know, what my politics are about and what my argument about capitalism and productivity growth and automation is about, which is, hey, this is the richest society that has ever existed. And yet we're working more than ever, especially when you consider now. Uh, how many more women are working for wages while still also doing so much unpaid labor. There's so much work going on and we're not getting paid more for it. Shorter hours for the same or more pay is such a potentially radical demand, not just because more time and more money would be great for everyone, but because what do we do? What we do we become once we have that time and those resources? I think part of the reason shorter hours are so terrifying to capitalists and part of the reason they have historically fought so hard against this demand is because a worker with shorter hours is not just someone with more leisure time. It's someone with time to read, time to think, time to socialize, time to organize. There is something deeply radical about freeing our time. Sure. Okay. Well, Peter, uh, thank you very much for your time. We've we've barely covered a lot of the stuff in the book, so if anyone's interested in it, again, it's called Four Futures: Life After Capitalism. I'm sure you can buy it plenty of places, but um, first aid books you can buy it directly from their site, right? Yep, you can buy it directly from Jacobin, also. Okay, cool. And yeah, also have a look at Jacobin, uh, which is a website as well as a periodical publication. And I've read a lot of good stuff in there. So I recommend people check it out. So yeah, um, thanks very much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So that's the end of my conversation with Peter. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if so, if you could subscribe, rate, review the podcast. Sorry to keep going on about it, but it really would help me to grow and keep doing this. So that would be very much appreciated if you could do so. Just to let you know, it's probably going to be a bit longer until the next episode. I have got some stuff lined up with guests, but it's just uh, how it's going to work out with timing in terms of doing interviews and research and stuff. So it will be a bit longer, but it will be coming. Um, but anyway, until then, thanks for listening.